This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 9 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we take a look at some promising developments in the medicines used to fight COVID-19. We'll hear from a specialist in the subject who has had 22 years of personal experience on how to survive being forced to work from home and discover how food flow, an innovative Western Cape charity set up to address food insecurity, is now looking to expand to other parts of the country. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, for the second successive day, the official number of South Africans infected with COVID-19 rose only modestly Tuesday. The Department of Health reported that the country now has 1,353 confirmed cases, an increase of just 2% from Monday, which was itself up only 4% on Sunday. The deaths, however, rose from 3 to five by Tuesday night. Thus far, 39,500 South Africans have been tested. The latest growth rates are down sharply from the 30% daily increases reported ahead of the 21-day lockdown. Confirmed global infections of COVID-19, however, continue to rise in double digits, with John Hopkins University reporting that 823,479 confirmed cases were in the bag Tuesday night, up 10.5% on the day before. Confirmed infections in the U.S. continue to grow at 20% a day, having risen to almost 175,000 now. Projections released yesterday by the University of Washington show the illness is likely to cause 84,000 deaths of Americans by August, with the figure peaking at over 2,200 a day in the next fortnight. The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, admitted at a press conference yesterday that U.S. authorities underestimated COVID-19 and, quote, it's more powerful, it's more dangerous than we expected, unquote. Second only to the U.S., Italian infections are now at 105,000 and deaths at almost 12,500, by far the highest in the world. For the first time, however, the growth in both infections and mortality rates have started to slow. Over in Spain, however, a split is being threatened in the coalition government with the far-left political party trying to enact a complete freeze on all economic activity to address a pandemic where deaths now exceed 8,000. In China, the return to normality continues with infection rates static. South African investors went bargain hunting yesterday for COVID-19 casualties with MTN's share price jumping 19%. Sassel was up 17%, Banks, Absa and Nedbank rose 18 and 13% respectively and property blue chip growth point gained 11%. The JSE's rally mirrored that of most other stock markets, although the late improvement is far from enough to offset heavy COVID-19 inspired losses earlier in the month which is going to make the three months to end March the worst quarter since the global financial crisis almost a dozen years ago. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. 
Johnny Brumberg joins us. He's the Chief Executive of Vitality Health International. Johnny, we spoke with your colleague, um, Alain Pedel, from Shanghai last night, and it was interesting to hear that there are a number of tests that are being done on promising drugs. I was wondering from a global, that's in China, from a global perspective, if you've been following uh, this side of the whole COVID-19 story. I have, uh, to, you know, to some extent, Alec, and I'm, I'm obviously not a clinician treating patient, so I'm an interested observer. Um, there are, it's not just in China. I think, you know, a number of drugs are being tried all over the world. Um, there's, in fact, a, 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 a big trial, big multi-center trial across many countries in which I think South Africa is going to be participating quite soon. Um, there are a number of challenges with these trials. You know, it's a, there's no time to design them. Often drug trials are designed, you know, years in advance, very carefully structured. You'd have a group treated with the experimental drug and compared to what they call a control group. Here, you're, this is all in real time. The doctors treating these very sick patients are trying things, um, you know, almost on the fly. And one of the interesting things that's coming out is as results come out, you get the kind of more pedantic scientists saying, yeah, but where's the control group? Mm. How do we know that this wouldn't have happened anyway? So, so you know, the data that's emerging, there's starting to be interesting data, but it's not uncontroversial because of the, the way it's had to be done, you know, on the fly. What about chloroquine? We, we did hear, we spoke um, in uh, an earlier episode to a South African black-owned company that was donating a million chloroquine pills that they managed to import from right. India. Uh, is, is it as promising right. as, as, as being made out in certain quarters? Uh, I mean, there's definitely small um, pockets of evidence emerging, Alex. So again, there's small trials. They're often on 20 patients or 100 patients. There's been trials from France, trials in China, and, and and there's quite consistent uh, patterns emerging from those, which is they seem to make a significant difference in very sick patients. Um, they reduce the viral load. That's the load of the virus in the patient's bloodstream. They shorten the duration of severe symptoms and so on. They're often being used in combination chloroquine with either an antibiotic or a, an antiviral in different trials. Um, I think one of the critical messages um, is, you know, people must not take these at home. Chloroquine and, and hydroxychloroquine, which is a related medicine, both have quite significant and serious side effects. And so they must be used in very sick patients under doctor's supervision. So that would typically be only in a hospital environment. So really important that people don't uh, sort of DIY on this kind of thing. And other drugs that are coming to the fore or promising? Um, so, you know, there are, um, there are some, they're trying a whole bunch of, um, antivirals as they're called. So there's a whole family of the antiretrovirals, which you'll be familiar with from the HIV um, world where, you know, that uh, those combinations have now led to HIV really becoming very well controlled for the majority of patients. So they're trying combinations of those. Some of the uh, newer antiviral medications that were developed in the wake of the the SARS 
um, uh, outbreak back in 2002. There was a subsequent one as well. So there are a few drugs available, and they're all being tried. As far as I know, I may be wrong, uh, nothing has yet shown as much promise as as, as chloroquine. Um, but, you know, I would imagine there's a huge amount of work. I read recently a paper this week in which, you know, scientists are starting from first principles, looking at the proteins on the virus and figuring out, you know, molecules that they think would attack the virus. So almost synthesizing new potential drug molecules from scratch. That'll obviously take longer. The thing about chloroquine, the good thing is it's well proven, you know, to to work um, in other drugs. It's relatively safe in people if used properly. So with a brand new drug, you're talking about many years of trials before that can be released onto the market. We had a, a really interesting interview. In fact, even the BBC <laughs> told my colleague, Linda van Tilburg, uh, how did you get the interview with Adrian Hill, who is leading the Oxford University uh, search for a vaccine. And they're talking about having right. something on the market or having it testing anytime soon, but having it produced potentially before the end of the year uh, he he was uh, very skeptical about it taking 18 months for a vaccine to come through. And I, I guess this is an Oxford professor, so we got to take him seriously. Uh, if that were to if he if they were to be successful, and he said there were two other vaccines that are being tested at the moment, it just seems like there's a new normal even in that area. Yeah, I think that's true. There was another big announcement today, Alec, that your listeners will be interested in from. From J and J, the huge, you know, U.S. pharmaceutical company, who announced that they had selected a leading vaccine candidate among a few they were trying. They were in a huge partnership. They announced today with an agency of the U.S. government, and they're planning to, you know, rapidly put this through trials and then have a million, a billion, a billion doses ready by January 21. So that's, you know, six, seven months away. So I think that what, you know, if you add those two stories together, it seems like there's going to be, you know, there should be decent volumes of a, of an effective vaccine with a bit of luck by the beginning of next year. So that's an amazing, uh, it'll be an amazing feat of human cooperation and ingenuity. And it will mean at least this thing won't be a recurring problem. Um, but, you know, I think we've all got to get through quite a lot between now and then. But that's so interesting. It, it shows it can be done. Yeah, it can. I mean, the one of the features of this virus, which is, um, you know, people may not be aware of, one of the things that virologists look at is how rapidly a virus mutates. Okay. In the c- case of HIV, it's a rapidly mutating virus, which is why they've never really perfected a vaccine because you, you create a vaccine to uh, to one stra- one strain of HIV and and then you find that the population has a different strain and and it seems with this um, SARS-2 cov this this the, the the virus that's causing this COVID-19 is that it seems quite stable from the mutation point of view which is one of the reasons I think it's been easier to create a vaccine there must be other you know, reasons of scientific reasons that have made it relatively easy that I'm not aware of, but it is pretty fast um, and, and quite quite astonishing if they really do think they've got something that works. They must 
you know, they must have good evidence, otherwise they wouldn't be making these claims. Johnny, the way that South Africa has handled it, it uh, the president has been getting plaudits from all over the world for acting early and acting fast. We've seen in the past couple of days that the growth in the confirmed cases has been very low, 2% today and only 4% yesterday, which is a long way from the, the growth rates that we saw before. Can we take any anything at all from that at the moment, or is it just far too early? Alex, uh, you know, look, I think the, the no doubt that, we, that, you know, our government acted very decisively and at a relatively early stage. And in that sense, we are blessed both with the government we have, but also that we had the luxury of watching, you know, the U.S. and Europe um, a couple of and China a couple of months ahead of us. Um, so I think that's all good. The I, I personally. I think it's too soon to tell. And what, and the reason for that is that, you know, we just, there are big backlogs in some of the laboratories. So I don't think when you look at daily rates of change now from one day to the next, we can honestly say that there's been a dramatic slowdown. I, I would, I'd prefer to say, let's look at a week, you know, where I think it's, there's a little more data and you can get sort of more of a, of a larger sample. There must be some positive impact of this lockdown. Um, it must be reducing the spread. But at the same time, we're not covering a huge proportion of our population with testing. The testing has been quite restricted to people meeting very specific criteria. So it is also possible that there are a large number of infections out there that we don't know about. Of course, if people are infected and not very ill, then that's also okay. We do need to know who those people are so we can isolate them. But, I, you know, to cut a long story short, I'm not sure we have enough data yet to convincingly believe that the rate of increases is tapering off and dropping. So it still is far too early to talk in that we're going to either go the China route or what we're seeing in the United States where the numbers there are just growing 20% a day. They're not talking today. The University of Washington was talking about 84,000 deaths in the U.S. They're only at around 2,000 at the moment. So yeah. That's a long, long way from where we are. I mean, even pre President Trump said 200,000 at some point. Um, and, uh, you know, so, look, I think, uh, I think we, we – I think we've got a very good chance of doing a lot better than the worst of Europe and the U.S. because we have moved sooner. You know, there's a there's another big element beyond lockdown, which the president did address last night and the Minister of Health has been addressing as well, which is we have to become better than we are right now at testing and then tracing all the contacts, all the known contacts of a positive person and getting them into isolation. If we don't have the other half of the equation, which is, you know, the testing and tracing and isolation, the minute people come out of the lockdown, because we can't do this forever, um, you know, the epidemic will surge again because some people will come out of lockdown infected um, or, you know, they're because they, they're, they're, or, or there may have been people infected in the population and it'll start spreading again quickly unless we can quickly test and isolate. And that's what China's done. That's what South Korea's done. All the countries that have been successful have combined lockdowns with 
blanket testing, tracing, isolation. And I'm very hopeful. And I think it's critical that that our government gets that right in the next, you know, days to weeks. We have lost some time on that component of this this battle. But the support from the private sector has been quite astonishing. Last night's announcement by the president that NASPERS is putting in one and a half billion rand. That's yeah. Well, it makes even government's contribution of 150 million look uh, look pretty small. But um, supported there by the Chinese government and uh, and their associate over there, NASPERS's associate, ten cents. So our connections are starting to help. Yeah, they are. And I think, you know, well, don't understand governments, you know, fighting this everywhere and going to be ending up spending, you know, multiples of the private sector just in, in all of its efforts. But so I think, um, but the private sector, I think the, the response has been remarkable, not just in, in donations. Um, and those are, are, are really coming in quickly to the solidarity fund, which is fantastic. But, also, you know, through just support in kind. So there's a huge response through the Business South Africa Coalition against uh, COVID um, and enormous amount of work going on, Eric, um, you know, securing supplies of testing and protective equipment, ventilators, medicine, um, you know, modeling the epidemic, arranging the hospital response, collaboration with the public and private hospitals, so there's a vast amount of work, and I, in in all my uh, time in in healthcare in, in in this country, I haven't seen this level of cooperation between public and the private sectors, which is very heartening and I think quite crucial um, if we're going to succeed as a country on this issue. Yeah, I better add a rider there. That 150 million was just seed capital for the solidarity exactly, fund, wasn't exactly, it? Exactly, uh, exactly, was, exactly. And and 10,000 yeah. field workers that government is also going to be having to pay for. Is yeah. that enough? Is it exactly. is, is, is to get out there and to go and test people? Is is that the kind of army that one needs? Well, I don't. I haven't. I haven't really tried to calculate. I think that'll be pretty phenomenal because remember, you've got a lot of infrastructure already. So people who ha- who have symptoms, you know, once we come out of lockdown, uh, there can be, you know, mobile testing done by the National Health Laboratory Service, the private labs, the hospitals, pharmacies will be able to start testing. So you don't only need to do, sca- you know, sort of assessment and testing by field workers like that. I think those will cover the more, you know, sort of semi-rural, rural areas, peri-urban areas. I think in the cities where most of our population live, there'll be a lot of other access to testing. Um, so I'd, be, I'd guess that's a good start. Um, it's a pretty big army to start off with. Johnny, since we last spoke, are you feeling a little more optimistic or pessimistic? No, I'm, a, I'm, I'm vaguely more optimistic. Um, uh, why, why is that? I think the, the, the dis- announcements by the president last night are, are very heartening. The Commitment to tracking and tracing and expanding testing is critical. Um, I'm, 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 I'm sort of feeling more um, confident as I see the private sector response, you know, um, gelling and, and, and starting to, to, to work in a very efficient way. Um, and um, part of me hopes that these lower case numbers are something real, or the beginning of a real bend in the curve. So I'm definitely a bit more optimistic than a few days ago. Um, I, I, you know, we're definitely not out of the woods, and we're starting to hear about the deaths, and, you know, it's already up to five, and I think that is going to escalate. And 
that's all very traumatic and tragic. So, you know, we are far from out of the woods. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. One of the most popular stories published in recent weeks by our partners at the Wall Street Journal was a practical guide for remote workers written by Dr. Alexandra Samuel, who spent the last 22 years working from home. The subject's really popular now because of COVID-19's impact on workers being sent home. I caught up with the Vancouver-based writer on Tuesday. Here's an excerpt from the full interview, which is on the Biz News Radio channel. Alex, how has life changed for you and maybe more so for people that you know, your friends and associates, by COVID-19? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's sort of probably three big things. Um, The first is just day-to-day social contact. So um, in my pre-COVID life, I made a point, because I'm a remote worker, I made a point of having regular dates with a few different people in my life. I had a friend who I co-worked with two or three days a week. I had another friend where we would get together once or twice a week. Um, Otherwise, I would get very isolated. And so uh, I really miss those right now. The, The flip side is that I used to be limited to having my social interactions with the people who happen to live in Vancouver. And now I keep this app running on my computer called House Party, which (laughs) has really taken off since the pandemic started. Um, It's just sort of like an ambient chat room where people can drop in. And if you and your friend are both online at the same time, it will let you know and you can just have a quick video chat. And the really cool thing about that is that, you know, I've had these just spontaneous conversations with people in Montreal, in San Francisco, in Germany, you know, people who I would not normally talk to in the course of a year even, but we're getting to spend more time together because of um, the remote shift. And then the other, you know, big way our lives have changed is um, just in our, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's the family piece. And I really feel for I, I, you know, I was talking to a friend yesterday who has a seven year old and, you know, she wanted to know, like, what the secret is. And I said, you know, the secret is to have teenagers rather than young children. I mean, my friends who have young children are just it's so brutal because um, trying to get work done when you have children in the background is not fun. And I know that because, you know, the reason I homeschool my kid is is my youngest is autistic. And, you know, even before all of this. I had I have been known to occasionally, you know, deliver client pitches while sitting with my back against the door, holding the door closed. My son's like pounding on the other side. I'm trying to have a client meeting. Um, That is not fun. And um, in our family, we were already pretty set up for that. But, you know, even just having my eldest child at home now, it's really hard to find a quiet corner of the house when I need to do a call. Um, but, but in all honesty, like it's so much easier for us than it is for people with young children. And I, I just think, um, we all really need to extend some compassion and patience because your, your phone calls and Skype meetings are going to get interrupted. And that's just the reality. And, um, we need to be patient with one another. When you started working at home more than 20 years ago, how long did it take before you believed this was better? Than going into the office. I'm trying to, I'm just trying to work out how the world might change for many people who've been forced into this way of life and they might actually like it. 
Totally, totally. And um, I'm, I'm working on, on another project right now to dig into exactly that question. So I think, um, I mean, in all honesty, the very first time I did this, I did not um, think about the difference between an eight hour work day and an eight hour home day. And I was quite young. I had just moved to Vancouver. I didn't have any friends here yet. And I was working for a company in Toronto which is three hours ahead in terms of time zones. And so I would wake up in the morning at, you know, 7 a.m. I would feel too, super stressed because everybody else in my company had already been at work for an hour. So I'd sit right down at my computer and I would work from 7 o'clock in the morning until 3 or 3.30 uh, every afternoon without taking a break. And then I was just like totally dead. I had no ability no energy left to go out, meet people, you know, especially in that early stage where um, I was new to the city. So anybody I might see was kind of a new friend. And I became really depressed, like super, super depressed. And I ended up actually going on medication for the first time because I was so depressed. And so um, after that experience, I really shifted how I approached remote work. I made a point of um, taking more breaks. I made a point of working to what was my set of goals for the day instead of feeling like I had to put in hours. I made a point of booking a social interaction with somebody every day. And I think that, you know, one of the most important things for people to recognize at this moment is even if you hate remote work right now, like this is not what remote work is like in normal times. <laughs> Most people I know who are remote workers um, spend a lot of their time. They either like they work in a co-working space, they work at coffee shops, they make dates with friends, they make a point of booking a lunch date every single day. Like every single person I know who is a remote worker has strategies for staying involved in the world. And so I think the thing to look for if you're new to remote work is not so much um, how you feel about it or how it affects your mental health, because that is just going to be hard all over right now. Uh, it, it's good to try and take care of it, but you kind of can't judge based on this moment. What you can maybe judge is how it affects your productivity. Um, if you're somebody who is able to focus intensely and you like being able to you know, work in a burst and then take some downtime and work in a burst and then take some downtime. Remote work can give you a lot more flexibility to follow your own energy cycles than what you might experience in an office. And so I think for people who find that actually they're more productive without being at the office, even if they feel a little lonely, um, it might really be worth considering that that this could be a good long term approach for you once you're allowed to actually leave the house during the workday as well. How do you think the world's going to change after this, after companies have seen perhaps higher productivity from their staff, how, after people have seen, well, it really suits me not to have to go in the uh, commute for an hour or two a day. Do you think there's going to be mm -hmm. much of a, of a difference in the new world, the post-COVID-19 world? I, I love that you asked this. And, you know, this is one of the things I, I have to remind myself all the time and I remind my friends all the time is, you know, I think a lot of people respond to that uncertainty with a lot of catas catastrophizing, right? It's easy, really easy to be like, what if my job never comes back? What if my company implodes? What if like unemployment stays at 30% forever? You know, all these terrible what ifs. But the thing I like to remind people is 
like the world we had before, maybe it isn't coming back, but a lot of us had some pretty serious complaints about that world, including a lot of complaints about the pace of work. I can never go offline. My boss expects me to reply to email all the time. I don't get enough time with my family. And so I think this is an inflection point where we have the opportunity to reshape the world so that the world that comes after actually fixes some of our biggest problems with the world before. And I do think that remote work is a big part of that um, for a couple of reasons. One is that, um, you know, there's an environmental footprint to having everybody get in their car or on even on a bus every morning. And when you stop commuting, you just take a big piece of that out of the equation as well as a big cost. Um, a second a second piece is the family piece and the sort of work life balance. Um, you know, at least here in North America, most most people I know, Vancouver's kind of an exception, but most people here work just crazy hard, long hours all the time now. And I, I think it's really hard for people to have healthy family lives, have have you know, be physically and mentally healthy when you're working 14 hours a day. And I hope that the discovery of how much you can get done when you're working on your own schedule might lead to more people working remotely, having more flexibility for family needs, having more time for themselves. And I think that would be really helpful. And then the third piece that I have to say I'm personally really excited about is the impact on um, social inclusion. So, you know, my perspective on a lot of these kinds of questions is shaped by the fact that my youngest child is autistic. And, you know, he's he's a really bright guy. Um, all kinds of things I think he'll be able to do uh, when it when it comes time to get a job. Working in an office has always felt like a stretch for him. And one of the things that's been really interesting in the conversation, I follow a lot of autistic people on Twitter and a lot of them are sort of saying, gosh, you know, we've been telling you for years that we need to work remotely. And you always said it was impossible to accommodate us. And now it turns out, actually, it's just you didn't bother. And so I think that um, the discovery that so many people can work effectively from home and maybe a cultural shift towards uh, remote work is going to open the doors to workforce participation and like fuller workforce participation for a lot of people who are or have been shut out of the workforce. And I don't just mean autistic people. I mean, that's a that's definitely a big group. But there are a lot of other people, you know, people with family obligations, people with certain kinds of health conditions that make it difficult to necessarily work a five day week. You know, now we're maybe going to make a little more room in our working lives for people who need to work a little bit differently. And when you think about the range of talents that we have wasted because we've been so fixated on work as this thing that happens for eight hours every day in an office building. Well, you know, changing that vision, broadening that vision, making room for people to work in different ways. I think that's going to have profound and positive effects on um, our productivity and our growth as, as not just as an economy, but as a society. And we close off this episode with a heartwarming interview by my Biz News colleague Linda von Tilburg. Food Flow, a charity set up just 10 days ago to feed vulnerable people in the Western Cape, is wanting to expand to other parts of the country. Linda says what makes the Food Flow story interesting is that it's not only a handout but ensures that farmers can sell their goods 
with charities providing funding, a win-win partnership because it ensures that the farmers themselves continue to produce and survive and people who need it don't go hungry. Feeling quite fortunate in this time to have something positive to be focusing our energy on and uh, doing our little piece of the pie um, during a time that, that obviously is, is um, a lot to take in. So for people who hear about this the first time, they might be, um, how, do, how do they access it? If for businesses who want to, part, you know, to, to partner with you or for anybody interested in this, how do they get the right information? So our website is foodflowza.com, and we're on um, social media at foodflowza, um, and you can also contact us by email through those channels, and we're happy to have a conversation and, and see if we can um, get this support to as many people as possible. Well, Ashley Newell and Emang Lin, um, thank you so much for speaking to us, and good luck. I hope your venture grows, and, you know, this is such a wonderful way of dealing with what is really a crisis in our country. This has been Episode 9 of Inside COVID-19. Until tomorrow, I'm Alec Hogg. Cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.